Hi, and welcome to this first episode of Transatlantic Bridges, uh, a series in a project with European Liberal Forum and Svenska Bildingsförbundet in Finland on strengthening transatlantic ties. I'm your host today, Björn Wunstorf. I work as a political advisor at Svenska Bildingsförbundet, focusing mainly on security and defense. Uh, and we've been working on strengthening transatlantic relations for many years. Uh, and our prime project within that framework is called Liberal Traktik, where we send out up to 13 interns annually worldwide uh, to think tanks and political parties and universities. Uh, and among those positions, the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C., where actually our guests and my co-host today met for the first time. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, Today, we have a very honorable guest with us, uh, Rachel Elihus, who is the Senior Civilian Representative of Security and Defense in Europe, uh, the so-called SECDEF Rep Europe, and Defense Advisor to the U.S. Mission to NATO. Uh, previous to that, uh, Rachel worked as a Senior Fellow and Deputy Director with Europe, Russia, and Eurasia uh, at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. Uh, absolutely. Uh, happy to be here. Thank you, Rachel. And my co-host today will be Krista Grönros, who is a policy advisor at Svenska Folkpartiet, the Swedish People's Party of Finland. Thank you, Krista, Thanks, for yeah. joining us. Thank you. Nice to be here. Let's start off with a softer question. Rachel, since many of our listeners are young professionals dreaming of an international career, tell us shortly, how did you end up where you are today since you have such an interesting position? Oh, thanks for that question. That's a good one to start with. So I was always interested in travel. Um, and actually, Scandinavia is where I started when I was a, a sophomore in high school. Somebody took me on a on a tour of Scandinavia, and I never looked back. So I knew I wanted to travel, interested in languages, international relations, and then it took off from there. And then I think the interest in defense was was just because it was so tangible, and it really seemed to make a difference um, and and almost enable the ability to do other things like foreign policy and humanitarian assistance. So I guess that's how I got into defense and, and Europe and, and NATO in particular. Thanks. And how did you end up at, at DOD then? Well, um, actually, I, I started out uh, similar to Krista uh, initially. When I finished grad school, I worked at a think tank uh, in Denmark, actually, and from there, started to think about going back to the United States. I'm a, I'm a U.S. citizen and, and thinking about how um, I might fall into the U.S. government. And just by, by luck, I had some contacts in DOD uh, who pulled me in, and, and it really was an issue that I enjoyed working. And from there, it, it really focused on Europe and NATO and then eventually made my way over here to Brussels. Thanks, Rachel, for sharing your story with us and how you, how you ended up at DOD. Uh, well, let's dive straight into our subject for today. Uh, we are recording this podcast a mere day after the NATO leaders meeting in, in Madrid in Spain ended. And this was a very important meeting for us in Finland and in Sweden, who both in May applied to join NATO and now since Wednesday also officially have been invited to become members. And if we look back even half a year, this was not something that we could even imagine what happened here, but Russia's attack on Ukraine in February really changed the security landscape in Europe in, in such a fundamental way. And this also led to a significant change in the popular opinion regarding NATO here in, in Finland and in Sweden. Uh, so this outcome of the, the leaders meeting, the invitation to become members, was not something that we could have taken for granted either. 
since uh, quite unexpectedly our application faced opposition from uh, Turkey and then uh, our president Sauli Niinistö and Sweden's prime minister Magdalena Andersson, they met together with President Erdogan of Turkey and NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg in Madrid uh, in order to discuss the concerns that, that Turkey had and uh, fortunately these discussions yielded fruit and Turkey since agreed to support both Finland and, and Sweden's bids to join the alliance. Uh, and this was, of course, great news for us here in, in Northern Europe. Uh, and Rachel, you were present at the leaders' meeting in Madrid. Uh, what are your main takeaways from the meeting and what will happen next? Well, everyone's calling this a, an historic summit, and I don't want to overstate that, but it truly was incredible the amount of things we were able to accomplish. And, you know, maybe I'll start with the one you mentioned. Um, first, Sweden and Finland applying to join the alliance. Um, and now having them as invitees. Of course, we're used to having Sweden and Finland around the table as enhanced opportunity partners. And NATO has been working with your militaries and, and your civil servants in the ministries of defense and foreign affairs for many years. Um, because geographically, the security in Northern Europe is, is so intertwined, it would be irresponsible not to be having those conversations, even as you were partners rather than NATO allies. But it was a wonderful surprise. And the mood in the room among foreign ministers was just simply joy. That, that this had been a breakthrough. Um, but there were some other good things. Um, we agreed a new strategic concept. The strategic concept is NATO's document um, that sets out sort of its general direction of travel for the coming years. We haven't had one since 2010. Uh, and if your listeners look back at the 2010 strategic concept, you'll find that it talks about um, – Russia as a partner, it doesn't mention China at all. It barely mentions climate change. So that was really in need of an updating, and the fact we were able to agree that is, is another win. Um, maybe just to highlight three more that I think are important, we were able to enhance, um, take some initial steps to enhance our deterrence and defense posture along the eastern flank. We saw Germany, the UK, Canada, all stepping up to reinforce their posture in, in the Baltic region, recognizing that our deterrence by uh, denial strategy maybe wasn't robust enough now that we know Russia's true intent and have seen that in play with regard to Ukraine. We think we need to move to something that looks more like deterrence by denial. So more forces forward, more rapid reinforcement, more enablers, and all of that was set in place. Um, next, more assistance for Ukraine. I think in the midst of this terrible war, we forget that NATO had a relationship with Ukraine before the war and will have one after. So what should that relationship look like? So we're thinking about things like um, defense capacity building, uh, eventual reconstruction, uh, cyber assistance, all of those things that help Ukraine and other at-risk partners um, who were also included in some of these agreements um, to, to withstand that and become more resilient. And then for the first time, we had global partners around the table. We had um, Japan, South Korea, Australia, and New Zealand join at this summit. And that just underscores the importance of them being part, as like-minded partners, them being part of solutions like sanctions on Russia and implementing those sanctions or helping to reinforce the rules-based international order. So I think there's a lot to celebrate, um, and, and I was happy to be there. This sounds really good, and, and it really feels like we're, we're living, living in the midst of history right now. So much is, is happening. And thanks, thanks for this update. It's interesting to hear, hear from the ground what was happening. Um, so if uh, and when, hopefully, Finland and Sweden uh, are accepted as members of the alliance, that would mean that all five Nordic countries 
uh, our members. So uh, this would bring all kinds of new opportunities for cooperation in a region where we already have quite a long tradition of, of cooperation in many areas. And uh, there were some comments here in Finland of the possibility of, a, of some sort of Nordic bloc within NATO, but uh, our political leadership has since said that this is not something which is in the pursuit. But what kind of benefits do you think that Finland and Sweden can bring to NATO and to the whole regional security in Northern Europe? Another great question, and, and I think you're right to point out that there already is, in a way, a Nordic bloc, uh, not necessarily within NATO, but sort of, you know, between NATO allies and partners. We have things like the Joint Expeditionary Force that's led by the United Kingdom, of which Finland and Sweden, I believe, are, are already participants along with a number of allies. Nordic Defense Cooperation is a wonderful um, example of like-minded allies who have, you know, similar similar interests in terms of equipment and modernization, kind of coming together to find efficiencies and economies of scale. And then, of course, the Northern Group at a policy level uh, kind of creates that caucus. And when you have an alliance that's 30, soon to be 32 allies, you have to work in those smaller groups to build consensus. So the United States, for example, will often first go to the quad. So, um, you know, U.S., U.K., uh, and, and France, and, and, and try to build that consensus before taking it to all 30. Because if you have that basis, it then makes it easier to get towards agreement. So I'm hopeful that on some, but not all issues, uh, we can leverage that Nordic bloc. Um, I do think that there are some differences as well. I was speaking to a Norwegian colleague at the, at the summit um, who noted that in some of the conversations with Swedish and Finnish colleagues as, as they sort of prepared for this eventuality, it was pretty clear that Norway looks very much north and across the North Atlantic, whereas in terms of defense planning and, 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 and concerns and the threat environment, Finland perhaps is looking more south and has a more of a land-based approach. And then if we look at Sweden's geography, I mean, they've kind of got to look everywhere. They've got to look west to the Baltic Sea. Um, they've got to look north uh, into the Arctic. So I think there'll be times when you find yourself um, in agreement as a Nordic bloc and other times where, you know, you might find yourself more aligned with continental powers um, or, cent or even Central and Eastern European powers, much less um, those in the southern flank. So it'll be an interesting dynamic, but I think we have a head start in a lot of the in the fact that a lot of the personalities know each other because both Sweden and Finland have been enhanced opportunity partners with NATO for so long. Rachel, I very much agree with your your comment that I, I think this will cement the, the Nordic cooperation. I mean, we've been having a lot of cooperation, but also different security solutions uh, for a long time, and and, and the cooperation there within can can be tightened through through the possible memberships of Finland and Sweden, but but if we think in in pure capacity, uh, from from the NATO perspective or even from the U.S. perspective, what do you think a Finnish and a Swedish membership in NATO bring bring to the table in in terms of capabilities for for NATO's European defense? Well, I'd probably focus on two, one that's more conventional and one that's more, um, you know, forward looking on the conventional side. I think the membership of those countries brings us what we call strategic depth. 
So if you're a planner, mm -hmm. you're looking at how long it would take the adversary to sort of get to the target. And, you know, just given the sheer size of Finland and Sweden and the territory and the geography, I think the Baltic states can can rest, um, you know, a little a little sounder knowing that the Baltic region is is now um, filled with more allies than adversaries and 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 highly capable allies as well. I mean, I've watched Finnish and Swedish capabilities for, for a long time. And even in terms of something at like early warning um, and response and, and um, intelligence and surveillance, I think if, if I were in that area, I would be really reassured by those two countries joining the alliance. Um, and then the second thing that I think both countries bring to NATO um, is something that you've you've exercised and practiced at a national level for a long time. And I know Kristen and I worked a bit on this at CSIS. And this is this idea of a whole of society approach to defense and security. So when we're trying to push back against an adversary or deter or push back on disinformation or misinformation, it's not necessarily a military response. And it's not necessarily within the military of defense. Ministry of Defense or the Armed Forces, you have to work across government, across society to push back against the nature of these hybrid threats that we see today. And both Sweden and Finland are really um, impressive and, and, and role models in terms of drawing on the Ministry of Interior, um, drawing on, um, you know, broad swathes of society who have this mentality that they have to be on alert um, and looking out for, for challenges and building resilience. So those are two things I'm really looking forward to, to having imported into the alliance. Yeah, and from a Finnish perspective, I mean, the whole society approach is, is something we've been uh, keeping up ever ever since since the Cold War, so to say, and, and, and never brought down as some of our European partners uh, did. And I, I definitely think that that those models will be something that, that will be taken both in, in the EU context and in, in the NATO context. But this brings us to my following question. You mentioned the Baltic states. Um, regarding burden sharing within NATO, I mean, one can understand that not only Finland and Sweden have felt very threatened to Russia's war and aggression, but, but the Baltic states especially. Um, how do you think the burden sharing in supporting the Baltic states will look in the future? Well, I, I hope I'm defining and thinking about burden sharing the right way to address your question. But, you know, when NATO talks about burden sharing, we, we think about it we call it the three C's, cash, capabilities, and contributions. So in terms of mm. cash, I think, you know, the Baltic states are, and Poland um, in that regard, are among the allies who've said, you know, 2% is a, is a floor, not a ceiling. And we, you know, we have this Wales Defense Investment Pledge that said you should aim to spend at least 2% GDP on defense. Um, but now we need to be going beyond that, given the current situation, plus the need to modernize, that in fact, when we revisit the Wales Investment Pledge, we should be looking beyond 2%. And a lot of them are spending 2.5. I think in the case of Poland, they're even aiming towards 3. Uh, so I think, you know, the more allies that are, are keeping up on the cash side, I think that is important, but it's not the whole picture. Um, in terms of capabilities, I mean, modernization is is probably what we need to see across the alliance. When you talk mm. about security and defense or deterrence and defense in the Baltic Sea region, there is a tendency to think about land forces and boots on the ground. Um, and I don't discount the importance of having some sort of forward presence in, in you know, 
forward. Um, but I also think it matters what capabilities um, and enablers those forces have with them, what kind of command and control arrangements they have. Um, so when we think about burden sharing and capabilities, I think it's important that the forces that are being stationed forward in the Baltic states or elsewhere, Black Sea, Romania, for example, that they have things like air and missile defense capabilities, that they have strong ISR. So that'll be an important part of reassuring um, our Baltic allies. And then finally, contributions. And I think this is probably the most interesting one because, you know, despite their own security challenges, the Baltic states uh, and Poland are, are among the best in contributing to, um, you know, K4, or when we had mm. ISAF Afghanistan, or Icelandic air policing. And so they really have embodied this all for one, one for all mentality that underpins NATO, even if they have their own security concerns. So it's important to, to really keep an eye on that, um, and to make sure that, you know, we're addressing um, all areas of the alliance. Uh, and in that regard, I, I think it's important, something I didn't mention at the outset, that at the summit we did get an agreement on common funding. So if listeners don't know, NATO has a small common funding budget. Um, it's actually three funds. It's a civilian budget, a military budget, and then kind of an infrastructure budget. And uh, allies agreed to increase that considerably between now and 2030, both to be able to... Um, help with NATO 2030 and the modernization agenda, but also to keep up with the changes we're seeing right now. I didn't know about the infrastructure fund. It's, it's interesting. Can, can you tell us a little bit more? Will that be kind of NATO-owned equipment then? And, and, and what sort? Or is that something you can, you can dive into at all? Yeah, so it's a, it's a little bit wonky, but it's it's the acronym is NSIP, N-S-I-P, NATO Security Investment plan, I suppose, rather than fund. Um, and from a U.S. perspective, we would we would consider it something like, you know, funding for infrastructure. So let's say um, we have a base, uh, let's say in Norway, um, and that's a national base. But increasingly, we recognize that the location of that base is really important for NATO to be able to access it. But maybe the runway is too short, or maybe it doesn't have um, the command and control to plug into NATO headquarters. That NSIP funding could be used to upgrade those bases and update them so they can be used by NATO allies um, and to some extent partners as well. So it's kind of a fund that supplements national funding um, to enhance NATO's infrastructure. Sounds sounds very good. Uh, brings me on to my, my following question. Uh, look, looking ahead, uh, I spent a year in Brussels in 2016 working on EU-NATO cooperation, mainly uh, from a research perspective. And, and then, then we saw, saw the European countries slowly waking up to, to European states, uh, taking a little bit more ownership within the NATO framework of, of their own capabilities. Um, but of course, the Russia's attack on, on Ukraine shocked the foundation of European security and the world. Uh, so the EU and NATO and the US came quickly to Ukraine's aid, providing everything from anti-aircraft systems to protective gear and fuel and medical support. But cooperation is, is more essential than ever. Uh, but now, hopefully, with, with Finland and Sweden also joining uh, NATO, we'll have more EU member states or also NATO member states. Do you see that there, there's a better future for the framework between EU and NATO uh, regarding security and defense? I, I definitely do. I think I think Sweden and Finland's membership in NATO 
um, as well as Denmark's scrapping of its opt-out on EU defense, mm. um, will change the dynamics in, in both organizations for the better. Uh, we've already seen the EU step up incredibly um, in, the, in, the, in the war against Ukraine. I mean, we're seeing EU defense in action rather than theory, which I think is something that a lot of uh, th- those fans of EU-NATO cooperation and a stronger EU defense have, have sort of wanted for some time. It's like, oh, well, we've got a lot of documents and meetings and declarations and concepts. But what does this look like in practice? And so I think we saw, you know, sanctions coordination. We saw the provision of aid, not just through the civil protection mechanism, but through the European peacekeeping facility. Um, You know, we're seeing a lot of really good things. And I think there's definitely room for more as we move into, um, you know, reconstruction and and other things with regard to Ukraine. So I'm pretty optimistic um, that, that this will continue to move in a positive direction. I mean, in their 2016 joint declaration, NATO and the EU had laid out any number of areas that made sense for both organizations to to have a role in, given their respective capabilities. And that was everything from cyber to hybrid to resilience. Um, And now China, I suppose, has sort of also got that that dual dimension. So I'm hopeful that this this will move us in the right direction. Um, And, you know, the Scandinavians are known for their pragmatic voices. So... So I think um, I'm hopeful that we'll get a little bit more pragmatism with regard to NATO and, and EU cooperation in both organizations. Now, let's hope so. Yes, let's do let's do that. Uh, you mentioned China, which which is really really bringing uh, our discussion forward. Let's talk about U.S. foreign and security policy and and global engagements outside of NATO for a while and and. Um, this is also this was also interesting for me at, during my time at CSIS since U.S. Uh, is a great power nation and and uh, interesting from coming from a, a northern European country quite a small country to look at the world through this lens uh, in a change. So if we move our focus from from Europe to Asia, uh, where we all know that China has been flexing its muscles for some time now. And if we look back a few years uh, to the Obama administration, uh, who made a strategic shift in, in U.S. foreign policy with a so-called pivot to Asia, uh, meaning a shift in priorities and, and resources towards this part of the world. And uh, now, uh, which you also mentioned earlier, HL, uh, China uh, is featured or mentioned in, in NATO's new strategic concept, which was adopted on Wednesday. So uh, our question is uh, twofold. Uh, can the U.S. be engaged everywhere? Uh, and uh, if China continues to flex its muscles, will Europe lose significance again? And um, we, uh, you probably know what we're thinking of. So mm-hmm. is future engagement, uh, engagement guaranteed? Can we count on, on the U.S. in the future, both in NATO but also globally? Well, you know, you mentioned the rebalance to Asia under under the Obama administration. Um, I would call that the first attempted rebalance to Asia because that was quickly um, tampered down by Russia's first invasion of Ukraine. Um, so we're almost seeing like a second uh, attempt at rebalancing, but reality calls. And, you know, you can't just wish... Um, the the challenges and threats on the European continent and in the transatlantic space away. So I think what we're going to see for a while is, is is an attempt to do both Europe and Asia. And I think President Biden, def- or I know President Biden definitely means it when he says that the U.S. is committed to Article 5 and defending every inch of NATO territory. And if you look at the decisions that were taken at the summit and just the sheer... Um, 
you know, increase in, in the U.S. posture, whether it's in the Baltic states or Romania or continental Europe, um, I think that speaks to the U.S. commitment. That having been said, you raise a good question. I mean, the U.S. can't be everywhere every time. We have a lot of domestic challenges that require attention. And, you know, just to bring a little bit of domestic politics in, into this, uh, you know, we've got midterm elections coming up, a presidential election a few years down the road. So, you know, our U.S. leaders need to be thinking about how this plays with a domestic audience. And I think part of that is them being able to say, yeah, the U.S. stepped up and the U.S. led when it came to assistance to Ukraine or or bolstering our deterrence and defense posture for our NATO allies in Europe. But allies also did their part and they stepped up. So I think we see signs of that. Um, you know, the U.S. leads this Ukraine defense contact group that happens at least monthly at the SecDef level. Um, and we have not just, you know, NATO allies, but NATO partners and, and global partners stepping up. I think it was 52 participants um, when they last met on June 15th. So I think that's that's positive um, in terms of posture. I think I mentioned that both Germany and the UK and Canada had, had stepped up uh, to help reinforce the eastern flank. But we need to see more of that. If we don't want to lose U.S. attention, public support, we have to show that we can we can do both and that Europe sort of standing on its own two feet, even as the U.S. remains engaged, is really an essential part of that. Yes, we, we can agree, but we also hope for future future good cooperation in, in this area and all other areas as well. Uh, you, you spoke of, of UK and, and Canada increasing their their sharing in, in, in European security, but also when it comes to, to the heavyweights in, in, in military in, in, in Europe. I mean, France are also increasing their military spending, but Germany, uh, where, where do you think they can take a, a bigger role? I mean, now that they are really turning their, their policy in terms of, of strengthening their defensive capabilities. Yeah, I mean, Germany was probably one of the most interesting um, allies to watch in in the North Atlantic Council as, as it became apparent what Russia's intentions were towards Ukraine, because the moment those boots crossed, crossed over into Ukraine or the missiles moved into Ukraine, Germany was was right there. Mm. You know, Nord Stream 2 is done. We're spending 2%. We're giving, you know, took them a few weeks to get to lethal aid to Ukraine, but they quickly got there. So I do hope that's sustainable. Um, I think, you know, at the summit, Germany was certainly a leading voice. Um, and as I mentioned, they stepped up. They're, they're the framework nation for the enhanced forward presence in Lithuania. And so they have promised to provide more forward forces as well as the ability to reinforce those forward forces up to the brigade level. Um, and they've agreed to work towards a division level headquarters. So certainly they're mm -hmm. stepping up in Europe and continentally. But because there's been so much un underinvestment in Germany, German defense, uh, for so many decades, it's going to take time uh, to repair that, to build a strategic culture, um, to make sure the procurement processes are functioning uh, well, to retain and recruit uh, the best officers and to build those those capabilities. So I, I hope it's sustainable. It's, it's a very welcome change. Um, and I think this old adage that, you know, other allies don't want Germany spending too much on defense is, is certainly out the door. And a lot of countries are are actually looking to Germany um, for more leadership. And now going back to Christoph's question, um, you mentioned earlier the global partners uh, and, and their role 
we didn't we didn't NATO. Uh, do you see see a future where where NATO cooperate a lot more with with, with non NATO members, especially uh, within within the Pacific? Or yeah, I think that debate is still on, ongoing in NATO. You know, you asked a question about China, and I think certainly um, Canada and and our European allies have have over the last decade come to recognize the the challenges that China presents in Europe. Mm. So, you know, they're looking at some of the predatory lending. They're looking at some of the dual-use capabilities that might raise questions, um, some of the emerging technologies that might create vulnerabilities. So certainly that awareness of, of some of the risk um, in Europe with regard to working with China is is there and, and is pretty apparent. I'm not entirely sure that all allies are convinced that NATO needs to be taking a global role. Um, with regard to the Indo-Pacific. Um, I think we're more likely for the time being to see subsets of allies going in that direction. Um, and frankly, that might be the right answer because, you know, given the Russia challenge, NATO has enough to take care of in its own area of responsibility. Um, so I, I actually expect to see more um, of what we've seen in the past, which is things like AUKUS or the U.S. working with France and the U.K. and then and then maybe a subset of smaller allies to do, um, you know, convoys or, or freedom of navigation uh, tours a across the area. Mm. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and and I personally hope that that the Nordics will will be taking part in some of these missions as well in the future. Uh, this brings us on actually to the future of, of transatlantic security, since this podcast is part of a project focusing on on strengthening transatlantic relations. Um, we want to conclude with with the question: How do we keep the transatlantic bond strong? Uh, and what capabilities will the transatlantic security landscape need? as we move move into to the next century even well i mean that's a that's a tough question and i think it's it's one whose answer evolves in real time um like the alliance itself but if you look back mm. at the history of nato um you know it, it it moved from just a few members to now 30 today um it was very much focused on territorial defense against one adversary now it's it's not a global alliance, but it's more globally minded for sure and, and active in any number of areas. And it's undergone several um, evolutions and changes from, you know, territorial defense to out of area. Now maybe a little bit back to territorial defense. Um, so I think that ability to evolve and stay relevant and recognize um, what the public's um, are interested in and, and concerned about is is really important. So recognizing that, you know, things like climate change um, are something that the alliance has has to worry about from a security perspective because it has a link with instability is is something that I think um, helps make it more relevant to, to some of the concerns of, of younger generations. Um, I think it's also really important to do exactly what we're doing right now, um, to have public events and exchanges and try to explain, you know, not in acronyms or, or big lofty terms what the alliance is up to, but sort of how it can make a difference um, for, you know, just everyday folks. So I think it's all of our jobs to, to keep pushing the alliance into the future and explaining why it's doing what it's doing. And, and why it's relevant in the future as well. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about our common security issues. Uh, and we hope uh, that we in here in Finland will soon get to join you in the NATO family. And we hope that our European partners keep 
being engaged in the transatlantic bond and let's keep it even stronger. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Krista. Thank you. It was a wonderful discussion. Thank you for the discussion.